Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Patrick, co-founder of Form Ventures, an early-stage VC focused on investing in startups that are disrupting regulated markets or building in new markets that will face regulation. Patrick helps founders break down policy barriers and shape winning regulatory strategies. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Patrick, welcome to the European VC podcast. Super nice to have you here today. How's everything? Great, thanks. Yeah, just, um, you know, the last sprint before Christmas. All good? Uh, yeah, looking forward to that. Christmas is one of my favorite times in the year, so I'm very much, very much excited. <laughs> Thank you for reminding I me of it. that. I appreciate it. How's it going? Andreas hates it because he, uh, he had no love when he was a kid, so it hurts. Yeah, I'm like the Grinch. It's the same problem. I, so I told my wife last night that all I wish for for Christmas is that I get to drill a hole in the in the in up to the attic that I can then take uh uh pull pull a wire from my internet out into my uh my 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 office <laughs> that's all I want for Christmas that I'm happy <laughs> <laughs> and on that note <laughs> Patrick um we've known you for 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 some time now actually so that's that's really cool to have you on the pod but to our listeners who have no idea who Patrick is, Form Ventures, they don't know what that is, give us a quick rundown. How did this all come to be? So, well, thanks for having me on for starters. I'm just, uh, for those who don't know, we're a pre-seed and seed fund focusing on, we said the future of regulated markets. So that's either traditional regulated markets, fintech, health tech, utilities, uh, or what we think of as the next regulated markets, so new markets that haven't been fully regulated yet. So very obvious one there is, is crypto, but also cultivated meats, uh, carbon offsets. Um, we've put medicinal cannabis in that space. Um, so but between those two, um, that's what we think of as the future of regulated markets, and that's where we focus. In terms of how we, how we started, I guess it, it's a um, long time ago, back in 2010, Leo, my co-founder, and I were both uh, lobbyists. We worked for the, big, the biggest lobby group in the UK, the CBI. Um, and we did that for three years, focusing on different kind of poli policy and regulatory um, areas. And then years later, 2018, I'd, I was leading a corporate venture fund for Deloitte and doing a piece of work on, okay, how do, we, how do we kind of make money as a corporate venture fund? And I remember seeing for the first time that depressing statistic, I think it was Mark Andreessen's statistic, that um, 15 companies a year in the US return 95% of venture returns. So the big question for us was like, okay, how do we get allocation in those in those companies? What can we do to justify our seat, seat at the table? Um, because I just thought if we can't answer that question, then what's yeah. the point in, in working in venture? So um, Leo and I got to thinking like, okay, would a fund that focuses on these these new the either these new sectors that aren't yet regulated or traditional regulated markets, and use the fact that we had lots of experience in dealing with all the opportunities and risks that come with um, moving in a regulated market um, and offered that to founders, like, would, that be, would that be sufficiently differentiated to, to be able to win, win allocation in those companies? And so we spent six months testing the market and obviously it was, we, we thought we were the first ones to come up with this genius idea before we realized Tusk in the US were doing it. So that, that winter we, we went and saw them. 
And they said, oh, no, we have no interest in doing Europe, which uh, was obviously great for us. <laughs> um, so that's when we, uh, we started raising the first fund. When was that? For listeners? So that, that's winter 2018. And uh, in terms of development, where you guys are today, still running Fund 1, already with Fund 2, just so everyone has a common understanding before we deep dive. So the first thing we did was raise, like, scrap together a million dollars to, to basically prove we could do it with a, a pilot fund, so 10, 100K checks. And that was really painful. That took about nine months of asking literally everyone we'd ever met for money, uh, which was both uh, embarrassing and hard work. Uh, but we got there, and we started to deploy that all the while. We were, still, we were having conversations about like the full fund too, because we still had day jobs, right? We can take any fee from that million dollars yeah. or if we could we wouldn't have been able to survive on it so um so we were pretty much continuously fundraising for the bigger fund too which we closed last september so september uh 2021 uh so it, that was like a full three years at least three years from when we started talking about it and that's a 30 million fund we now have four people um investing at pre-seed and, and seed uh so we, we could take a salary from last September, um, but before that, we, we basically couldn't, we didn't make any money for over three years. Which was great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I should, I should say, I had another job for two of those years. It was just one, only one year uh, when we took no money, and it was uh, really painful. But then, you know, we, we believed we would get it done. And, and fortunately, and there was definitely a lot of good, good fortune, we did get it over. Uh, it's too cool. It's too cool. I would, I would love, because back when we, we we spoke the first time patrick when you said you'd done a one million euro first or dollar first fund i said i think i said huh i'd love to dive deeper on that because most times you hear people doing a you know a poc fund with five million in that neighborhood but you you went for one could you tell us a bit about the the uh you know thought process as to why did you do that but also some of the learnings afterwards and would you do it again? Yeah, great, uh, great questions. The, f the first one is, I mean, we would have loved to have done 5 million if we could have got 5 million. <laughs> um, so probably don't have wealthy enough friends and network. That's one issue. Um, always a problem. We, we basically, the, the, uh, yeah, the way, the way we saw it was we have to prove to LPs that we can do each stage of the value chain from like, seeing the best deals, deciding, winning the best deals, adding value, like exit, okay, that's unlikely that we can prove that that early. Um, so what's the, what is the like MVP for that? And we thought like 100K tickets, obviously that's not what we're trying to invest in the second fund. So we can't, we can't prove that we're going to get 500K's worth of allocation, which is like the ticket, the average ticket size in fund two. But we can prove most of the other things. Like we can get founders to say, yeah, these guys are really differentiated. We made room for them on the cap table. We can be present in the market we can show that we're seeing the best deal so it's i i guess we we thought one million was and it was probably just it was the very very lowest we could do and i think actually one of the pieces of feedback we've given a couple of lps is that in the uk and, and i think you guys have talked about this before that there's a there's a gap for those like properly emerging manager funds between like a lot of people can scrap together a million but getting jumping from one to 30 was like we were lucky to do that and in the us i think that's less common like usually people would ladder up like one five twenty forty like and it would be kind yeah. of more there'd be more steps in between and we so the, the honest answer is we would have loved to have got to five but like one was I'd love, 
That's I'd right. love to ask Patrick, did you did you race on the back of an angel track record or, or, or none? Only the investing I've been doing at Deloitte, which was low cadence and anyone who's been near CVC would know like, you know, it's hard to pin down what you're actually responsible for. Like, and I, and I completely, when LPs highlighted that, I've had to hold my hands up and say like, yeah, it's true. I done, I ran the team, I, you know, ran the processes, I sat on the investment committee, but it's not like, yeah. you know, it's not like your own track yeah. record. So, so basically we, we were really looking for true believers. And I think it only worked because of how highly differentiated we were. So we could go to people who had experience in tech policy or ex-regulators or or founders in markets where um, they run into these issues. And then, and for those people, it's like, oh, this should definitely exist. But I really would not have liked to have been like going to them with a generalist strategy. It just wouldn't have worked. But then Patrick, tell me, why the <laughs> hell did you opt for doing a fund one of one million rather than, I've got this deal, let's do a syndicate. And then two months later, I've got this deal, let's do a syndicate. Yeah, so this is so interesting. We would have done that, but almost the first person we talked to, and we weren't even pitching, uh, there was someone uh, my partner had worked with who uh, is another fund manager, and he basically backed us with 250K um, without us really pitching. We're like, shit, we should just run this as a small fund. At the, <laughs> at the time, AngelList still had their, what they subsequently have closed down, they still had their fund manager like infrastructure. So we just thought, we should just do this as a mini fund. It's like another piece of evidence we can show LPs so, that we are kind of <laughs> playing at manage exactly. <laughs> yeah. That was, that um, was, the, yeah, that was always... the worst favor anyone could do to you. <laughs> Here's two hundred. <laughs> I know. Um, and this is funny. Your your final question, I guess, was like, would we do it again? We often say, like, if we had known how hard it would be to get to the thirty million fund, like looking back, would we have thought this was the best way to build form? Like maybe not maybe it would be better to go to kind of bigger funds for a, a couple of years and then try to come out with like more of a track record it's just really really hard and certainly in this fundraising environment we're kind of thank god that we closed autumn last yeah. year and weren't in 2022. Yeah. Uh, that's that's exciting i'd love to kind of focus the conversation on you know the reasoning behind you guys investing in what you're investing. So why the hell, you know, raise a fund to invest in the future of regulated markets? And from where I'm standing, it's quite obvious that a lot of it is due to your background. And that is, it, it goes almost without saying, I would say, right? But maybe maybe the, the, what isn't as obvious, at least to me, is what, is what is actually the opportunity? How do you see the opportunity to invest in this space? And also connected to that, how that informs, as an example, the type of business models you're looking for, or is it, you know, software play versus hardware play? So how that informs all of, all of the spectrum of, you know, deals that you're hunting for now today. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. We, while we sound highly differentiated, we're actually, we've tried, we tried to remain like vanilla, what we called vanilla in pretty much every possible way. When we were pitching LPs, we said, we just knew that LPs would naturally be reasonably conservative. And so while we're innovating, like we wanted to be, kind of straight down the line and pretty much every way, except for how we're being, how we're differentiated. So what that means is we're doing pure software. We're not going into bio, really into bio. Um, and we're not going to hardware, but like very kind of conventional. We're looking for like, you were unicorn hunting. So in many ways, we're just straight down the line, VC. Um, in terms of the types of companies we look for, that why we're after these like regulated or newly regulated markets, um, really two reasons. One is, we just think Europe has an edge in these markets. And I was listening to the founder of Plaid talk about this and him saying like regulated companies 
aren't necessarily best built in Silicon Valley. Uh-huh. Like Europe has, what Europe has is regulators that are tend to be more collaborative. They like this. There's basically it's, we seem to have a recipe for good regulated businesses in Europe, and in the UK specifically, we were looking at the unicorns, and I think. You know, lo- there are lots of obviously different different lists, but it seems that to uh, seem to us that about like, two thirds or more of the companies being built were in what we called regulated markets. Obviously, a lot of them are in fintech, but also health tech, energy, n- increasingly bio. And so we we rather than saying like we think the future is going to be that different to the, the present, we just thought that if we are unicorn hunting, let's see where the unicorns are and and pitch to LPs like we think we can get allocations in the most interesting companies the future is likely to be as it has been in the past which is we're particularly good at regulated markets in europe um and then so that's one that's one side of why we thought these companies why this is the strategy and the second is as you say it's just tied to our backgrounds like we are used to to helping companies like these basically get through uh, overcome policy and regulatory hurdles i was doing it but uh, before i I was briefly a strategy consultant in regulated markets, and obviously I'd been a lobbyist. Leo had been, after he had worked at the CBI with me, he became a regulatory strategist, often working for VCs when their companies ran into regulatory issues. So he was working as an advisor to VCs, like usually when things went badly wrong, which was like which was way too late to deal with them, as you as you probably know. Like once you piss off a regulator, like it's probably too late to like turn things around, or it's much harder to. Whereas if you're proactive and you take take these things seriously early, which are most often the founders do, um, then you've got a really good chance of scaling. I have a question, which is, it's one thing that you've got a great differentiated value at, which means that the founders want you. Okay, check. But if you are, you know, an investor that knows a lot about regulation, but what the hell brings fintech, health, health tech, energy, you know, all those verticals together, how do you pick? Because, okay, you've got a huge regulatory problem. Let me invest. <laughs> That's probably not the, <laughs> the thing you go for. Yeah. Yeah. So this is that's a great question. And, and also something that several LPs raised with us. And, and our answer was always the same, which is we are first and foremost just a VC. So that differentiation is a means to an end. We are a VC trying to be top SL fund in several consecutive funds. So the strategy is a means of doing that. When we go to invest in a company, what we're not trying to filter for is companies that have the biggest regulatory issues. Because as you say, like we will just be running into brick walls all the time. Like we are we think we have a strategy to get into many of the most interesting companies that are being built. Um, and that's what we're trying to serve. So you know we we joke sometimes saying like well ever you could argue every company is regulated. And that's kind of deliberately deliberately the case like we want to be able to try to get access to as many as a broader kind of top of funnel as possible um you know there's obviously limits to that like we probably wouldn't try to convince calendly when they were you know i know they didn't take money but like you know that type of pure b2b SaaS, like unlikely to yeah. be something we can go but for. then um how do you deal source because you know the typical model for someone with that type of uh specialty when it's not you know, tied to a vertical as such, but it's more tied to, to, to a very special value add is that you're invited in to all the best deals because, you know, they need you. Um, so for that reason, Basima knows, uh, <laughs> Index knows, whatever, that, that Patrick is the guy we need to call to 
only have to give them a small slot in the cap table and then 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 we're set for everything regulatory is is that often how deals come to you or how do you source yeah so that's always been the aim is to be that player that that like you know we <clears throat> we don't intend to lead rounds like we have co-led around this year but by and large we aim to be the second or third biggest uh ticket on the cap table uh, at a given round so yeah we want to be we want to be the fund known for when you have some form of policy or regulatory exposure we should be on the cap table and leads should seek us out. I mean, that, that's not always the case. We're trying to build a brand of our own. Like we would love founders to approach us directly and they do like increasingly, we do have a, a nascent brand, but yeah, exactly. We would love to just be the, basically we, we want for two reasons. One, because we want to be able to um, get into the best companies and often the big brands, are the ones seeing the best deals, but also we don't want to play the game that lots of leads are having to play, which is like, at the point of committing to a company, you might only have a 50% chance of winning that yeah. deal. Like we would ideally have no churn at that rate. So, so far, fortunately with both the fund one and fund two, which is now 17 deals between the two, we've never committed to a company and not got the allocation that yeah. we need. So we see like, if you compare that to everyone having to compete for lead positions, I'm sure people obviously don't want to report how often they get churn <laughs> at that point, but presumably, People are getting lots of churn because everyone's for competitive yeah. deals. Lots of people want to leave. Yeah, of course, I, I'm curious about on the LP side, um, but both for fund one and fund two, obviously, but but fund two being being more interesting. Do you have like lobbyists, public affair professionals, and firms kind of in your LP base? How do you think about that, and what are the the lines that that are at play there of of the relationships that you have with those individuals if you have them in your LP base, and what what do you do and what is a no-go kind of red area, red zone, don't touch, don't do that? Yeah, that's interesting. So public affairs, lobbying, that area, I guess, one thing to say about that upfront is that lobbying in Europe is nothing like it is in the <laughs> States. So the, the kind of what you see in like films of people paid <laughs> off or smashing down doors or things like it just does not happen in Europe. It's far more collaborative, much more about positive engagement, like, uh, engaging consultations being proactive that type of thing that's so well we call it like some people call it lobbying we tend to avoid the word just to avoid that like us yeah. uh, kind of sense of of what that looks like um in terms of lps though <laughs> they don't tend to be that well paid in in europe versus the us so lobbyists public affairs people like we we have a few as lps but they are certainly not like the main constituent parts it tends to be people you know you know, like the legal profession um, or professional services. So that's on the high net worth side or, or just fund managers, basically, that invest in regulated industries before. Um, and then obviously the, actually, for, given that fund two, the 30 million fund uh, is our first institutional fund, we did pretty well on like the kind of institutional, semi-institutional layer. So we have three of the emerging manager, like European backers who you guys have, talked about in the uh, at length before so definitely ones that you know um and, we, and they, they were it took a long time to get them in justifiably so but we're absolutely we're absolutely delighted to get them in because we always wanted to be like this is about building something over 20 or 30 years getting professional backers who can hopefully back us for, for that time period and we were just wary that we get lots of individuals in three years time we're going to have the same painful process as we have to seek out another set of uh of, of new LPs. I actually just earlier today had a conversation with an emerging manager about, you know, 
why why he wanted fund a fund on his cap table and 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 so on. Could you dive a bit into you know what where the where fund of funds have really made a difference to you and, and how you thought about when to engage them, how to use them, you know, both during the fundraise but also after. Yeah, so this um, it's a great question, and we so in advance of closing, we use them. Well, one, the actual pitching itself really helped us hone our pitch because they're like, they are, you know, you do get obviously professional individuals investing in funds, but the level of professionalism among the fund of funds is just really high. And so as a test of your pitch, it's just brilliant for, for just improving. Um, then you've got introductions to others. I say, as you know, obviously if, if you're consi if they're considering you and they're keen on invest, potentially keen on investing in you, in you, then you get introductions to others, which, which was great. Um, once we had them on side, it really felt like this is definitely going to happen, like because these are uh, like the stamp of approval, which we had was just really high, and then it helps you actually bring in others that you might already be speaking to. And then, so that's before the investment, and then afterwards, just the the degree to which they care about business building, I think, has been brilliant because we love the site, like love venture, but also love building a fund as a business and fund of funds really buy into that, which is, is great because then you can talk about team building and what's your yeah. structure look like and like how you incentivize people. All the questions that we VCs will talk about for startups a lot, but actually like at the VC layer, yeah. there isn't, and also VCs can be supportive of each other, but there isn't, you know, st even in London, the community is like still nascent compared to what it is in the, on the West Coast. So having the fund of funds community has, in support of that has just been, been brilliant. So it's been really, yeah, it's been great. I'm kind of resisting the urge since this started to ask like a completely unrelated question. As as the the regulatory guy that that really understands venture and, and regulations and stuff, I I have to ask you this question, which is you know, with everything that's been going on in crypto land, <laughs> where do you stand? <laughs> Share with us some of your <laughs> educated and enlightened thinking. <laughs> so where we stand is we as the as the investor in the future regulated markets, we have not made a single investment in crypto. Um, and that is not because we are super bearish on the sector. It's for two reasons, really. One is our view is deal for the very best deal flow is going to like insiders. Yeah. And we are yeah. still like a generalist fund. If we are collecting stuff that's coming out of those communities, it's probably a negative, like, negative selection yeah. bias. And that has made us really, really wary. Um, so until basically we take the time to really, really commit and go deep to join, like get in better than those communities, basically, which obviously Andreessen have done that. They've got the biggest crypto policy team in the world, like more so I think than any other government. So they've chosen to do that and they've made regulation the most important thing. So we've always known like this is somewhere we should go at some point. We just haven't done it yet. Like got, got to that level. Um, and the second thing is we are frankly wary of brand risk. Like if we're the guys who are meant to know about regulation, both opportunity and risk, and then we start making bets that blow up. It's like, these guys got it wrong and they're meant to be the experts in this space. Like this is a serious brand risk for us. So we just, it's, it's, it's basically a decision point that we have to reach, which is like, when are we gonna go deep to get, so the most important thing for us is taking the decision to go deep so that we can get into those deal flow communities so that we can be confident we're seeing the best deals. Um, and I know like, as you guys, I'm sure do, the, the crypto funds in Europe, um, in fact, one of the guys, Alex Shalkovnikov out of Semantic, um, he's a great guy, hired me back in 2016. I speak, when I speak to him, I'm reminded like, oh, this is where the communities are. They're yeah. like, they're not where you yeah. are. They're somewhere else. So 
Uh, so when you have at least access to that conversation, I think is a good like warning yeah. to, to be I have a question, which is, um, you, you know, when when your value add is 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 on the um, on the regulatory side, does that mean that you also, you know, do you like regulatory risk? You know, meaning meaning of obviously you'd prefer there not to being, but but is that is that where you kind of differentiate in your selection that you can you can take a bet on on you know places where there is regulatory risk and you can then kind of you know chart out the path <laughs> or is it more that yeah yeah tell me no yeah sorry that's um i guess that is one way to frame it i think when we initially pitch the fund we often focus on the value it plays in the value chain in the portfolio value add part of like the value chain and less on the decision making but the reality is we do think that our knowledge of the regulatory and political landscape gives us a bit of an edge in decision making as well to like properly price regulatory risk so that might be um a, you know a, a vc looking at um uh some type of retail investment app which involves uh leverage or or crypto or something that basically we know like oh actually we know the fca's view very well and we think it's being like mispriced either on the upside or downside so there is there are times when we feel like we can gauge that better than than most other funds um i would say we we tend to stay away from like binary risk yeah. i think you know people see us people see us as the potentially as the fund that's willing to take the binary regulatory risk because we know that we know the space, but actually anything that is that close to just being killed, we think no, better to stay away from it because we're not, we can't tell the future. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there could be a change, a change of government that just closes certain things down. If that's the case, we don't want to be investing in that area. So, so I'd say it's, it's, it's not always the case that we have an edge in that space, but we do find ourselves sometimes looking at deals where we think, oh, the risk is being like priced wrong here, either on the upside or downside. Could you, um, and I, I don't know if you can give an example, but if you could, it would be awesome. If you can't, that's fine. But could you give, could you kind of detail a bit more on, on that value add side? So how is your relationship with the startups and how, how are you providing, you know, that value within your expertise? And, and as an example, you know, I remember that when I, when, before I was even in venture, I, I, I worked for, for a startup in the electrical mobility space and, you know, mm they faced so many challenges when entering Europe, right? Many of them U.S. players, but they're also at a later stage, right? So I, I was kind of, kind of thinking of that, and I thought, mm, but that was, that was actually when they were expanding across you. So I'd love to understand a bit more in detail, you know, how, how your interaction with the startups is. Yeah, I and mean, the electrical mobility space, I mean, unfortunately, the, some of the big players, their share price now looks terrible. But um, at the time, we said like, they would have been perfect examples for us because, and actually, Tusk in the States was an early backer of Bird, so they were often a use case we, <laughs> we would highlight. The, um, so, we, yeah, we can talk like, pretty openly about some of the work we've been doing. I mean, the, the type of thing we would focus on is if you're taking on an inter uh, international market like cultivated meats, one of the things... Uh, you might you have to think about is like geographical expansion like which markets you're going to prioritize some of the biggest uh well arguably the biggest factor in determining that alongside say market size and, and consumer behavior is the regulatory treatment of cultivated meats and how quickly can you get to market so that's something that we would like to talk to the portfolio about um so 
certainly international expansion is, um, is a conversation we have with with our portfolio um that's obviously often not a seed stage conversation but like if you're you know once you get to say series a especially in the market like that where you have to be quite selective of markets it is it's quite early um another one so we're we're just making an investment in uh this in a market that uses gig workers and that's a market where the tr the treatment the legal treatment of gig workers is still we think hasn't hasn't really reached a stable point and like different market i guess we was we've been saying this that like three or three five years ago we might have thought that countries would converge and everyone would end up treating them the same way but this really doesn't seem to be happening spain is moving up in one direction the us and the democrats seem to be moving in a slightly different direction um and so a platform basically that is using or is serving that market um is just understanding how they should see that risk kind of um potentially unwinding over the next few years and what they can do partially at the product layer but partially just in terms of how they represent themselves in the market how they potentially represent themselves to government um you know that's that's a really early conversation to be having um and they're still a very early stage company yeah but it's interesting that you're bringing that to the table that early that's cool on on that note how um i guess that you guys as an emerging team as well you've, you've put a lot of work and effort and in, in at least um thinking time into how to how to position yourselves towards founders so that they they see that you guys have relevance that have a role to play that are important you know building up your brand many many might not know your brand right when you first approach them i'd love to ask you about you know how 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 has been that process internally and also some learnings you have that could also be kind of translated as relevant to other emerging gps listening in so on the brand building side in particular it's, yeah it's been really interesting i i think the when we started because we spent a long time as you say thinking about strategy and like how can we optimize every stage of this value chain to make sure we get as good a shot as any fund of being a, a like top SL fund the stage that we thought okay this is going to be our weakest is brand and deal flow like how do we make sure we see every deal because you know we we say like if we miss a single deal that's in our space that could be the golden ticket right that could be the company that would be the fund returner and then you don't have a fund in five, 10 years time because you just missed out on that company. So that is where we need to be. We feel like we've got the most headroom to be, to be building. Um, and I think, you know, we, in when we were doing all our strategizing with a whiteboard back in 2018, we kind of hoped that if we just got to the perfect strategy, then deal flow would just like look after itself. And that is obviously incredibly naive. Like you just need to, our, where we landed was, no, we need to, it's not enough to give like a co-investor a, co a rational reason to bring us in. We need to be, we need to be working harder than anyone else. Like be at every single event, we like to spend loads of face time with co-investors. Like basically do, do what other co other investors or generalist investors will do as their as their basically their whole strategy. We need to be doing that as table stakes. We need to be at yeah. every event. We need to like so, we do, and that's Maya who we hired hired on the team. I credit to her she spends so many evenings a week at events and leo and i both have kids under five five kids under five between us so we try to get as many as to as many as possible but it is it can get pretty brutal um so yeah it's basically i know that's not really that's more of a tactical point than a strategic one but i think we we've basically landed at the view that we can't you can't really substitute for that like just ground game and deal flow making sure that you are around uh and in people's faces at all times and just generally 
like we have this like front being friendly as a differentiator in the venture market i still think that's slightly a thing like there's a lot of people who aren't particularly friendly and therefore i i don't think they get the call so <laughs> Yeah, being friendly and the do no harm. I love that. Yeah, I yeah. Do that. <laughs> Don't be a value sucker. <laughs> yeah. yeah, do nothing. Andrea, is anything you'd like to deep dive before I, I take us uh, away? I it's almost a question that we have in the quick fire, but I would I would love Patrick just because these I think you know, judging from all this the CSI and I don't know what uh, um, criminal crime crime uh, uh, um, series that that exists. I think most people do like regulatory stuff and kind of stuff that's borderline uh, illegal and that kind of thing. So tell me, could you not pull out one example of something you know a space that you think is either incredibly exciting, but it's a super edge case uh, that you know it's 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 funny to dabble in or you've just seen something you've seen founders working where you think, ah, that's a, that's an interesting take on the world. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, we, so we've, there was a fund in the States called vice ventures that like, I don't know if you know them, but they explicitly focus on the vice clause, which other VCs yeah. can't invest in. And I do think it's a really interesting set of areas. We have stayed away from edge cases until this point, I guess one of the, one of the areas that we've just looked at quite recently, that's, we don't see much of in the UK, but we're really excited by is um, like nuclear, like very heavy and so kind of heavier, hard to do sectors that we're seeing more of in the States. Um, just feels like there is, when you see a really, really good team, like doing something, taking on something like that, it gets us really excited. So that's not, not an edge, it's more of an edge case in terms of how many teams are there that are really, really good in that yeah. space, as opposed to something that's on the edge of uh, legality. Um, Trying to see, I mean, the, the thing I mentioned uh, medicinal cannabis and like psilocybin is obviously an area that's getting a lot of money uh, in the US, Canada. Uh, it's one of those things that we would love to be looking at closely, but the reality is we're a UK fund and UK politically in this space is just, we are not going to be leading the way even in Europe. So as a general kind of headwind, it's just, not, it's something that we often mention and then we have to say, yeah, but we're very unlikely to make any investments in this yeah. space. Uh, that's that's actually a, a very interesting point. Um, to what extent do you, you know, factor that in? You know, the the, the legal framework of of the country from which the, the startup originates, right? Because also that is, I'm guessing you know more about the legal pathway or regulatory pathway in Britain than in maybe Spain or Denmark or so. How do you how do you navigate that? Yeah, so that's. <laughs> It's, it comes back to what you were saying earlier that you know you're, we're we're doing regulation as a horizontal, but like what's healthcare got to do with financial services? But what's that got to do with cultivated meat? And then you you map onto that different countries, and that is a hell of a yeah. lot of work. Uh, so uh, what we often say if a founder raises that is we've taken something reasonably narrow in terms of regulation policy versus every other part of the operating stack, but mostly you know hiring yeah. strategy product. So we've taken something reasonably narrow, but by taking something reasonably narrow we commit to doing the yeah. work so if you if you are a if you if you happen to be a company that says well like digital therapeutics which germany is seen as leading the way and like i didn't know anything about that a year ago but now i have to read about it like on a semi-daily <laughs> basis because it's what the portfolio expects yeah. um and so that's what we as a team have taken on i think as the portfolio expands we're going to have a question about like oh you've got 50 companies 
you know, between 50 companies are alive between funds and they all have different, slightly different policy and regulatory issues. Yeah. And for me, that's why, like, there's only a degree to which there's a, uh, economies of scale there. We will have to increase headcount yeah. to, to manage that because it's some, we've always just said we won't sacrifice, we will never compromise on the value add because ultimately founder brand yeah. is like what we want to yeah. prioritize for. Do you think about building network? Because I was just about to say before you, we should do a syndicate with you guys and we should get all the lawyers, one lawyer in each country <laughs> or five lawyers in each country. You know, how do you think about that, building the, the network around you that allows you to deliver that value at, at a scale? At, you, <laughs> you must have been listening into one of our like, yeah, sessions on scaling because one of, the things, <laughs> one of the things we've discussed is like, look, this would work. You know, we're doing it in the UK, it would work across Europe, but I'm not going to try and do like domestic French healthcare policy from London um how do we scale that and that's that network thing i think is one potential model that could work well and as you say either a network well probably a network on the co-investor side but network on the lp side is probably the most interesting way to do it where they are incentivized you get ex-regulators or or lawyers in those markets who can help at a, like a yeah. certain level and then you have a team kind of sitting above them that's i think that's a really interesting model and it's genuinely is for us getting it would be about tapping into those networks how do we get to them as lps yeah, yeah. and I, I know that's what you guys do really well as helping that like distribution yeah, basically yeah. because i don't know i don't know lawyer i don't know lawyers in central europe no or, no exactly yeah. interesting super super cool david now now you can take it away <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> patrick uh, we always love to end the episodes with a quick fire round that's when we ask quick answer questions 30 to 60 seconds each are you ready shoot <laughs> Which areas, technologies, or sectors excite you the most that you find other people around you not really that excited about? So I'd have to say the, the hard-to-tackle markets. And so I'd, I'd put energy in that space. Um, cultivated meat, because still, I mean, it's a growing trend, but globally there are still not that many companies taking it on. Um, basically hard-to-tackle problems where... Often there are slow-moving incumbents like oligopolies, complexities about how the private sector is working with the public sector. Um, because, there are, because there are certain risks in those markets, both VCs and founding teams often stay away from them. And it means when you see a really, really good team come forward taking it on, it's just you want to be in that company because you think if anyone is going to disrupt the market, it's only going to be one of like a certain number of teams. And if you find one of the best teams taking it on, then, then it always gets me excited. Second question of the quickfire is, what are your top tips for emerging VCs who are now fundraising? I guess my first tip would be, because the market is, we found it very tough 2018 to 2021, and the market has got harder, um, or like fundraising I'm sure is harder now. My first tip would be just being very, like thinking through strategy at length before you dive in, just because, there are lots of funds fundraising and you want to set the bar like it's really hard to convince good lps to back you at least in a way that will give you like a career as opposed to one fund like you might be able to get the first fund together but if you're doing this as a career you want to have a strategy that is going to stand the test of time and testing that with existing vcs like emerging managers like us that will always make time to speak to people who are thinking about launching their own fund so test it with people in the market uh founders as your customers LPs, if you can, existing VCs, um, to make sure that it basically that that strategy has the legs. Um, and then it really, it, 
on the LP side, we got to the stage where, um, well, one is managing your LP pipeline like a sales pipeline, but never, never be too ashamed to just hammer people with emails because what is incredibly important to you is only a tiny fraction of that LP's time. And that asymmetry is what can drive you a bit mad because you're waiting and waiting and waiting on an email. But like that LP might not have thought about you for a month, and that's fine because you're only a tiny bit, bit of their day. So just kind of getting over that sense of shame that you might get from hammering people with emails and just being helpful or reaching out. Like that, those reminders, we found sometimes it was the 10th email that got a response from, from people, and you know, some of them made it into our, into our LP base. So I, I think just... Uh, being super proactive in in communication and as i say managing managing it like a proper sales pipeline i think is the, the way to go i i love you saying that because i feel like i've just yesterday done an as big a commitment as any lp has ever done because of you know a cold follow-up email um from superhuman because I'm right now in the process of shifting from Outlook to using Superhuman, <laughs> and and going through the the, the 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 awful process of shifting away from from the email system I've used for decades to something else is really grueling. Um, but it was on the back of them sending, "Hey, you once signed up for Superhuman. Do you want to? Now we have it for uh, yeah. For, and and you, you know, if it, if you really come with something that's valuable, which you should to your LPs anyway, otherwise they don't really matter to you, right? Um, then you shouldn't be afraid of sending that thing and saying, uh, hey, man, this is what's going on, blah, blah, blah. So for that reason, I think that there are probably many managers that are less vehement in running it as a sales process where you have almost automated follow-up saying, we haven't spoken for 14 days. Yeah. I'd love to just touch base. Here's the latest news from us. Hope you're doing good. Absolutely. You've got to, as you say, you've got to back yourself to be offering. Like, you've got to believe that you're offering them something yeah. valuable. This isn't you begging for money, right? It's a value exchange. If you really think it's in their interest to get back to you, then yeah. then continue hitting yeah. them. And 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 if not, well, then then you're not a fit anyway, right? Then who who, who did you hurt? No one really. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Third and final question, Patrick, is probably my favorite as well. Your most counterintuitive learning since you've been in venture. I guess my most counterintuitive learning is is just how much of a people business it is, and maybe maybe I mean this is a bit of a a cliche now lots of people say it but there's being a really it feels like being a really successful vc um one of the main things you can do is just be very very good at dealing with people whether that's being good with founders so that founders want to have you on the cap table just on the basis of who you are that's like people as a brand and obviously the solo vc movement is testament to that 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 can be enough to make you really successful um being generally helpful as a like on the uh, as a an existing investor often gets you great references from founders so all these all these things were, were not the things that we were thinking about 20, back in 2018 when we were mapping out the strategy we were trying to like be very very analytical and like work out okay how are we going to compete with others and what's our pitch what exactly is our pitch we almost never said like okay so just how are we going to deal with people at each stage of the value chain because if we do that really well then that gives us a great shot being a, a really good fund um and i think i think a lot especially it's pre-seed and seed you know there are some of the the most interesting emerging managers when you look at what they're pitching they're really pitching like i am the type of person who people want to work with 
and and I think I'd buy it. I think it's a really I, I would give them my money. <laughs> uh, you're you're ab- you're absolutely right. That it is a differentiating factor to 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 be able to actually stay up on uh, stay on top of everything and come back to 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 people in time and you know give them yeah give them due respect at every single interaction. Um, especially in VCS, you know, as a VC, you get hit by by tons of emails every day, inbound deal flow that you know. Everyone, you know, you want to help them, but you can't. And then too many end up not replying, uh, not out of them being bad people, but simply because they, they can't figure out exactly how to get the thing yeah. set in the right way. Um, yeah. So, Patrick, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for, um, you know, bearing, bearing through a three-year race, uh, two years uh, <laughs> with, with one employment and one year without any, any salary at all. To now finally be on fun too and, and out there kicking and swinging so that's beautiful thanks a million patrick no, th- thanks a lot for having me on uh love the podcast guys thank you for listening to this episode of the european vc the go-to podcast for everything european vc if you love the show share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc 